Our Father, we would come before your majesty, acknowledging your supremacy, your sovereignty, your lordship over the universe and over our individual lives. Oh God, I pray that you will protect us from over-familiarity in our attitudes and actions, remembering not only are you our friend, the merciful, kind, and good God, but you're the almighty creator, hater of evil, the one who deals with sin and injustice. And I pray, Father, we will have the proper understanding of who you are. And I pray as we study uh, this particular passage and as we look throughout the book of uh, Exodus and other of the books of the Pentateuch in the life of Moses, we will really catch a better understanding of who the sovereign God is and what our relationship to you needs to be. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll guide us through the course of this hour. I ask that in every class you will be present in a way that will uh, change lives because that is your purpose. And I ask that you will help each of us to be pliable, to be moldable in the hands of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Exodus, I would like to begin reading at verse 16. Exodus 8:16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. And the, and the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and on beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. As we have come to this point, as we have looked at the seventh chapter of Exodus and into the eighth chapter, we've seen Moses in this, this great power encounter with Pharaoh. And of course, it's ultimately the encounter between God and the forces of evil within the land of Egypt. And God has now, up to this point, twice touched the very heart of Egypt, the Nile River, which was the, the aorta, if you will, of, of Egypt. Without it, Egypt could not survive. And, and God has twice touched that. One time he turned the whole river into blood and all the other surface water in the land. And the next time it literally crawled with frogs and frogs came out and frogs were everywhere all over the land of Egypt. In this play, God does not touch the river again, but in this uh, play, God touches what is probably only secondary importance to Egypt, and that is the land the black earth. I mentioned to you at the beginning when we first started this session that the Egyptians referred to Egypt as red land, black land. The black land is the fertile soil uh, upon which the water comes at flood and the red land is the desert that comes right down, right up to the black land. And of course the black land was what produced life. It's what produced the food of Egypt. And so God is now touching the soil of Egypt. Not that he's destroying its fertility, but it's bringing forth a very strange crop. 
It seems as we look at this passage that Pharaoh's refusal to honor his promise. He had said, if, if Moses, you will pray to God and the frogs will go away, I'll let Israel go out and worship in the wilderness. And so Moses does as Pharaoh requests and the frogs are gone, but Pharaoh refuses. He, he backs, he reneges on his promise. And so it seems without further ado, God commands Moses to instruct Aaron to take the rod of God and to touch the soil of Egypt. And he does so. Now we have no idea. There's, there's no a statement in here that they had been told ahead of time what would happen. But they're simply acting in obedience to the word of God. And that's such, a, such an important concept. That we act in obedience to the word of God regardless of whether we know what's going to happen as a result. This morning, as we were coming to church, Lois and I were uh, talking a little bit about... Uh, C.S. Lewis makes a comment, and I don't remember the quote exactly, but um, he said something about, and this a little bit was what was behind part of what I prayed this morning, and that we have a tendency to, to lean so much on the mercy and the love of God, which we must do. But at the same time, we forget that God is dangerous. Dangerous in the sense that He's almighty. He's all-powerful and he hates evil. And, and he's not a, a benevolent old grandfather sitting up there who, who wouldn't do anybody a speck of harm. God is going to devastate Egypt. I mean, it's not the devil. It's not circumstances. It's not lousy weather. It's God. It's God who brings this tremendous uh, disaster upon this land. Our God is a consuming fire. And we need to remember that. In our worship of Him, we, we don't want to breed so much familiarity that we forget who He is. I think really that's part of what our study of Scripture is all about, is discovering who is God anyway. And, and what is our attitude to Him to be? Now sometimes we have so many of these pictures of little Jesus meek and mild in the cradle, or, or Him walking on the road to Emmaus in, in such an idyllic setting, that we, we forget we're dealing with sovereign God. And we forget the fact that no matter how much we have chosen to follow him, we're still sinners. Some of you probably have read uh, either the sermon or heard about the sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in which the whole congregation was hanging onto the poles of the church and hanging onto the chairs, feeling as if they were slipping into the very pit of hell itself, because he presented so vividly the character of God and, and how God looks at sin. And we, so we need a balanced approach. Not a God who's, who's just so fuzzy-wuzzy, you know, like a teddy bear, that we never have to even worry about when we sin because he understands. And yet, on the other hand, not a God that we just run around totally in fear of, thinking the next time we do something wrong, he's going to zap us. We have to have a balanced understanding of who he is. And hopefully that's certainly what Moses and Aaron and Israel are deriving here. And we'll see how that is emphasized as various events now transpire through these next plagues. The soil in this passage, we're told, becomes alive with gnats. Now, that's just a translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew word here is very nonspecific. The Hebrew word simply seems to refer to some kind of a small flying insect without being able to narrow it down to a specific genus or species of creature. 
In fact, you'll probably, if any of you happen to have the King James Version, you'll, you'll read that it translates the word here as lice uh, rather than as gnat. No, it's possible. But it's not real likely here because if you're familiar with, I'm not real familiar with lice, but I've read about them and heard about them and so forth. I don't think I've ever <laughs> bred them, but <laughs> as I understand, they basically are transferred by contact and, and they don't just whoosh, out over the whole landscape, which is apparently what these did, which seems to indicate that they were flying insects of some sort. And the Hebrew word can even incorporate mosquito and, and any kind of a small flying insect like that could be included. And maybe it's many different kinds. You know, if a biologist was out there, he might find half a dozen different species. I don't know. Uh, but whatever they were, they moved quickly across the land and became a great nuisance both to man and beast. Seems that wherever they were, these little bugs were. And the scripture indicates that they were miraculously multiplied right out of the soil. They just and Not a natural phenomenon, not something that comes every seven years or every however many years like certain grasshoppers do, but something that God did right out of the soil. The very soil that brought life brings forth this terrible plague. So God has first demonstrated how that the river, the great source of life, can be a disaster. Good things become evil if God so ordains because people are refusing to believe in him. They're rejecting him. And so it would be here. They got into everything, into the food the people ate, into the air they breathed. Can you imagine trying to take a deep breath and inhaling a dozen insects? You know, Obviously it would be a little disturbing after a while and everybody would have to wear uh, you know, cloth over their head, and of course it's very hot in Egypt, so that would be very inconvenient and uh, create a very insufferable situation. Now probably most of you at some time or another have run into nasty little gnats. We, my wife and I, I think remember, I remember, and I think she does too, when we were uh, in Ecuador many years ago, uh, up in the mountains, wherever you were near water, there were these little tiny black gnats and you knew we were there because if they got on you, they bit you, and it was just like a little pinprick. Did you ever run into those there, Beth? And they were nasty little things. And I could just imagine if the sky were just filled with clouds of these things instead of a few here and there, but they just came in swarms. <laughs> It'd drive you nuts. In other words, the destruction here is more mental and emotional than it is actually physical. These bugs probably won't kill you, but they'll drive you insane. And I think that's part of what is happening here. Now it's very interesting that as we look at this plague, the scripture tells us that God prohibited the magicians from duplicating this miracle. They couldn't do it, either by sleight of hand or by demonic power. They were not able to duplicate it. Now, I mean, why would they want to? Well, just to prove that their gods are real too, you know. But again, if it were like the frogs, how would you know if you had multiplied them since they're everywhere anyway? But the scripture specifically says that they could not do it. And what's interesting further is the fact that they admitted that a greater power was at work than the power they understood because they couldn't do it. And to me, that tells me that they didn't do the earlier acts by sleight of hand, but they did it by demonic power. And now they sense the power was not there 
and they could not re replicate what Moses and Aaron have done. But you'll notice how they kind of dodge around here. They say, we see that this is the finger of God. Now, the finger of God is a metaphor for the creative omnipotence of the divine one or the divine ones. And they do not use the word Yahweh, which Moses has been using specifically before Pharaoh, that he might acknowledge that this is the God of, of the Hebrews. They use Elohim, which is the generic term, uh, more widely known for God. And so what they're doing here is, first of all, they're covering their tails by saying, it's the finger of God. We haven't been defeated by Moses and Aaron. It's God who has done it. And not only that, it's, it's God in the general sense. We're not going to admit to the God of, a of Moses and Aaron. We're not going to admit to the God of, Hebrews, of the Hebrews because the Hebrews are slaves. And how could we admit that the God of the slaves is greater than the God of the masters? Makes no sense. Doesn't seem to fit life. These magicians are frustrated. But notice Pharaoh's reaction. The magicians acknowledge that it's the finger of God, but Pharaoh refuses to pay any attention. Scripture tells us that Pharaoh basically, again, turns on his heels. The last part of verse 19, but Pharaoh hardened, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them. To whom? To his own magicians as the Lord had said he would do. Well, let's go on to the next few verses here. Verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. As he comes out to water, to the water, say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of insects on you and on your servants and on your people and on your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of insects and also the ground on which they dwell. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living so that no swarms of insects will be there in order that you may know that I, Yahweh, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of insects into the house of Pharaoh, the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because the swarms of insects in all of the land of Egypt. It's very interesting that Pharaoh, although he be the son of God in Egyptian theology, is not exempted from what takes place here. Remember the first plague? God said to Moses, go intercept Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. Now we come to the fourth plague. God says, go intercept Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile. So early in the morning, he goes out again to stand before Pharaoh as Pharaoh went out to do his, his daily ritual before the gods of Egypt. And can you just imagine, as Moses, I mean, here's Pharaoh out doing his thing, and he catches somebody moving the corner of eye, he turns, look, and here comes Moses. I think he had a deja vu on the spot, you know. And can we really put ourselves into Pharaoh's sandals here? Can we really think what Pharaoh must have thought? Well, some ideas came to my mind. Most logically, he probably says, Oh no, not him again. What have I done to deserve this? Well, you know, Moses could tick off quite a few things that he had done to deserve this. But in his own opinion, 
What have I done to deserve this? I think the thought flashed through his mind too. Why have I let this character live? Why don't I just do him in and get this thing over with? Thirdly, I think his thoughts were a great deal like those recorded of an, a later king in Israel. That king was Ahab. And Ahab had a terrible problem with a prophet by the name of Elijah. If uh, we turn to 1 Kings, I, I, I think this is illustrative of similar thoughts that Pharaoh must have had. 1 Kings chapter 18. As you know, Ahab was a wicked king in the land of Israel. He ruled from the city of Samaria. He had his wife, uh, whose name was Jezebel. She was the daughter of, a, of, a, of the Phoenician priest who worshipped Baal. And she was herself a Baal worshiper, and she had brought all these Baal, priests of Baal into the land and priests of various other gods and goddesses. And Elijah had a direct confrontation uh, with this uh, couple on more than one occasion. And Ahab kept coming out second best in, a verse, in chapter 18, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, this is Elijah speaking, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then send and gather to me at, to all Israel at Mount Carmel together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And of course, we know what happened there on the top of Mount Carmel. If you turn to the 21st chapter, after that event has taken place, the word of the Lord in verse 17, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus the, says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up the blood, your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Have you found me, O oh my enemy? Can you just imagine those thoughts being very similar to uh, Pharaoh? Have you found me, O oh, you troubler of, of Egypt? The enemy, my enemy. To me, it's really an amazing thing, and I, I trust it strikes you as you read this passage, that an absolute ruler, Pharaoh was absolute totalitarian ruler over Egypt. He was also believed by the Egyptians to be the son of God, the son of the sun god Amun-Ra. And yet this man, with all this temporal power and all this spiritual power, has done nothing to quiet this prophet of God. He has done nothing to terminate the existence of this troublesome alien, Moses, who continues to confront him and wreak havoc on the land of Egypt. You know, it doesn't take a college education to figure out that maybe if you got rid of Moses, some of the problems would stop. But why has he not done this? Why has he, I mean, could he not have thought of it? 
<laughs> Did Pharaoh ever have problems before in dealing with enemies? I mean, there are all kinds of, of uh, uh, tomb art in Egypt which depict uh, enemy soldiers being carried into the land of Egypt with their hands tied behind their backs and kneeling before Pharaoh, where Pharaoh's about ready to knock their head off, you know? I mean, no problem. Pharaoh was not, you know, uh, squeamish about capital punishment. And yet, he has done nothing. Moses walks about the land as if he had complete uh, diplomatic immunity. I mean, Pharaoh doesn't even threaten to imprison him. And do we ever wonder why? How can that be? How can that be? Well, I think the answer is in God's restraining hand. God is sovereign. God will not allow Pharaoh to harm Moses. Now, I think there's a passage that I'd like for us to take a minute to look at in the 91st Psalm. It's a familiar psalm. Some significant books have been written with titles coming from this psalm. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the de deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest your foot strike against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high, on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. It's a glorious psalm. And of course, I want to speak to other than messianic illusions that are in here in this particular psalm. I think most of us have come to a place in our lives and have, enough, have had enough experience to recognize that God does not give us any blanket promises relative to uh, absolute security in this life. That no harm will ever befall us in any way, shape, or form as the world determines harm. God's people are subject to illness, right? God's people are, suffer, are, are subject to accidents. God's people are subject to injustice. Things happen to God's people that sometimes you know, bad things happen to good people. Sometimes God mir miraculously intervenes, does he not? And sometimes he doesn't. All we have to do is turn to the case of Job. Job, of course, sometimes get worn, gets worn out as, a, as an illustration, but nevertheless, Job is there for a very specific purpose, and that is to be 
in illustration. Job was a man whom God allowed to face overwhelming grief, to face disasters certainly uh, of the greatest magnitude that the human, uh, human being uh, ever faces. And he did so for a very specific purpose or purposes. I think first of all, Job would be forever an example of what God will do for his people in the hour of distress. And also, that the paramount importance, uh, that there is the paramount importance of absolute trust in God no matter what. We often quote Job's statement, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. In, in this world in which we live, we are subject to not only literal storms like Marilyn and Luis and Hugo and other things of that nature which have buffeted a lot of people, but the kinds of storms that are emotional, that are spiritual, that often are also physical. But it is a peaceful, trusting heart in the midst of a storm that proves the reality of God. If the Christian was a person who never had any trouble, he or she would be irrelevant to this world. Because this world would look and say, but you don't know what it's like. You've never had the trials, the tribulations that I've been through. How can you relate to me? Because you've never been troubled. But the fact that we do go through the trials, the tribulations that are common to the human race enables us to, to share that, 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 that source of shalom, that source of peace in the midst of a storm. And that's really what God's about. The grace and mercy of God are best evident during trials and tribulations. Not when everything is rosy. We're sailing across the calm sea and the setting sun, you know, and, and the Hawaiian music is playing and the breeze is just the right temperature, you know. That's not where the grace and mercy of God is demonstrated. It's in the midst of the tempest. It's when the ship seems about ready to go under with the next wave that the peace of God, I mean, look at Jesus out on the Sea of Galilee and the ship is taking in water and the disciples are thinking they're going to die and Jesus is sleeping. You imagine, that's got to be a God-given sleep because I don't know how you could sleep through something like that. Because we're not talking about him being down in some nice little bunk in a, in a comfortable ship. He's in an open boat and the water was probably slopping over on top of him and sawing logs, you know. And the disciples shake him awake. Don't you care that we're about to die? So what is Psalm 91 really saying to us? Well, I, I think it's saying, first of all, that after a brief moment of time, which really our lives are but a brief moment of time, Scripture calls us uh, just a vapor. You know, kind of here today, gone tomorrow. Even if we are 70, 80 years on this planet or even more, it's, it's but a moment. It's just a split second relative to eternity. And this psalm is eternally true. We will forever dwell in the security of the Almighty, in the shadow of the Almighty, totally secure from any and all harm. But secondly, I think it does speak to this life too. To that individual that God has called to do a specific purpose 
and that purpose is, is dangerous to fulfill, I think God will prevent harm from coming to that per, uh, person as long as that person is needed to carry out God's purpose. And I'm not saying God is just utilitarian either. That all he does is just use us. But, but he preserves us for the, the uh, uh, purpose for which he has called us. And Moses is a wonderful case in point. How many times could Moses have been executed by Pharaoh? How many times could he have been stoned to death by the children of Israel? How many disasters did he face? I mean, how many people have picked up a cobra by the tail and not suffered any harm? This man didn't live a charmed life. He was living as we all do, in the shadow of the Almighty. And for God's purpose, that meant protecting him physically for a period of time. He was a hated alien in a hostile land, proclaiming a message of doom to a people who didn't want to hear a message of doom before a totalitarian ruler from whom no right or power or authority was denied by his land. And yet Moses was kept safe because he was abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. He didn't have that psalm to turn to. But a point I've tried to make ever since we first started studying Genesis is that even though we may not, or Moses, or, 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 or uh, Joseph, or Jacob, or Abraham, may not have had a particular scripture, scripture that you and I can turn to, the truth about God has been eternally there. And God has revealed himself to the necessary extent so that an individual could trust him in the midst of prison where he's been unjustly thrown, as Joseph had been. Or a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could trust God even though they were being tossed into a furnace heated seven times normal, so hot it killed the people who threw them in. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't have a real you know, love affair with fire. And the idea of being tossed bodily into a raging fire is, is uh, I mean, you know, if you don't hold a particular opinion real firmly, and that opinion's what's keeping you in or out of the fire, I think you're going to change your mind in a hurry. They were dwelling in the shadow of the Almighty. This protection that came to Moses was not there just because he was a child of God. And as you know, there are those groups today who are teaching that just because we're a child of God, this, 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 this must be true. We never will be sick and we should always be rich and all these things should happen and all these other things shouldn't happen because we're children of the king. As if we live a charm life because we're princes and princesses of the king. But that isn't what scripture is clearly teaching from Genesis through Revelation. Again, we have read the 11th chapter of Hebrews in the context of this class. And, and I've noted that passage which, which tells us that some of God's followers were tortured. Some were sawn in two. Now that's a thought that's never really been terribly pleasing to me either. It's right up there with being thrown into a fire. You know, the idea of being You know, a bullet in the head's one thing, but being sawn in two is another. Uh, killed with a sword, left destitute, law... And the list goes on. Were these people somehow 
not really men and women of faith. You know, they kind of blew it, and so they were outside the shadow of the Almighty. No. Most of you are familiar with the story that comes out of Ecuador over 40 years, or about 40 years ago now, that Elizabeth Elliot has so often written about in various books. So the five young missionaries who went into Alca or Warani country to carry the gospel to a people who had never heard that gospel. A people who were primitive, uh, a people who were known to be dangerous because virtually everyone who went into that society as an outside alien never returned out of that society. They were killed by this tribe, very commonly at least. And these missionaries went in knowing that their lives were on the line. They went in and landed on a beach in Alca territory, and even though they had weapons with them, they were not going to use, and they did not use those weapons to defend themselves. In January 1956, those five missionaries were all speared to death by a war party from the very tribe that they had been attempting to contact and to establish friendly relations. How does Psalm 91 apply? It says, 10,000 shall fall at thy right hand. It shall not come nigh thee, but it came nigh them. In fact, the testimony of those killers later was that it was hard to kill those missionaries. They speared them and speared them and they had to finally throw them in the river to drown some of them. And you think, I mean, that's got to be a really unpleasant way to go. Were they outside the shadow of the Almighty? Did God fail? Is his scripture only valid under certain circumstances but not under all circumstances? Did they lack faith? This is the killer, of course, because there are Protestant groups who will tell you that happened because somebody wasn't believing God. I don't think so. Because if you read the lives of these individuals, you discover that they were men of God as of what I would consider the first rank, and their wives also as women of God. No, I think that we discover that the 91st Psalm is a statement first and primary of eternal reality. We need to look at Scripture as God looks at Scripture. We're told in another Psalm that forever His Word is settled in heaven. His Word is eternal. It's not just a little manual for here and now. It applies to human existence throughout eternity. And throughout eternity, we will dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, under the shelter of the Most High. And those five men are dwelling right now in the shadow of the Almighty. This psalm only secondarily applies to the temporal world, not primarily. As I said, it applies to Moses during his life because God so chose to protect him for the purpose of achieving God's plan. But for these five men, God's plan was different. Did they not achieve God's plan? They certainly achieved God's plan because these five men served to open the door to this tribe of people. Elizabeth Elliot, in her biography of Jim Elliot, titled that book, The Shadow of the Almighty. Obviously an allusion 
to this particular psalm. psalm. Some will argue, but you know, to say that it applies eternally, that doesn't count. We want to know what applies here and now. Well, the problem with that is that to do so is to fail to see God's word from God's perspective, which is what we need to do. We have to see God's word from God's perspective. And for God, those who have been forever chosen by him before from eternity past to eternity future are in his protection. And, and the momentary things that go through life are not the cardinal things in terms of the events that impact our relationship to him and his word. It's the eternal verity that is important. Because for us, death is only a doorway. Death is, is not to be looked on as the great enemy. As Paul said, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? It's just a doorway. It's a doorway from a uh, potential standing in God to the experience of that standing in God. I mean, we already have that standing, but we don't experience it. But there are some who want us to be kings and princes here in this world and to go around, you know, like the $6 million man and, and, or Superman, you know, invincible to the things of this life, and that's not how it is. And it isn't because we don't have faith. Life, death, death is a transition from a life of sin and pain to a life of sinlessness and painlessness. Uh, well aware now, uh, because of the number of years that we lived, how quickly time goes by. And I, I, every once in a while I think about, what would it be like if I wasn't a Christian? I, I would be hating this. The time is flying by and I'm getting older and weaker and, and incompetent and all the rest of the things. And I'm losing what life's all about. But as a believer, I know that I'm just marching closer to the doorway of, of the glorious presence of God where I'll no longer be incompetent, I'll no longer be weak and crippled, but I, I, will, I will be all that God has intended me to be. So God keeps all of his promises. Every single promise in the word of God is fulfilled. Not a single one ever fails for fulfillment. And God has fulfilled even this promise in Psalm 91 for those five missionaries who died on Palm Beach. That seeming tragedy opened a door. And, and it opened a door in a, in a probably unforeseen way. Because following this death, two women, the sister of the pilot and the wife of Jim Elliott, Betty Elliott, were able to go in along with Betty Elliott's little daughter, Valerie, and live amongst the Warani, the Yalka, and to begin to minister to these people, to translate or to write, make their language a written language, to teach them to read it, and to give them scripture, show them the Christian life, and as a result, hundreds of Alkas have come to know Christ. God knew what it would take to reach the Alka. There are some people who accuse God of being wasteful. Why do you waste these talented, wonderful, gifted, committed Christians? Why do you just let them all die out there for nothing? When they could be used to do these other glorious things. God is never wasteful. God is the ultimate conservator. He uses exactly what he needs to use to accomplish his purpose. And he knew what it would take to reach the Alka 
to accomplish his purpose. He knew that martyrdom would open the door. And how many times has this been true? It's not for nothing that Tertullian, back uh, 1,600 years ago, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more you try to kill the church, the faster it grows. And I don't know if Satan's ever learned that lesson. But we discover that what kills the church is no persecution, seemingly. I don't think, I'm sure that none of those five and nor their wives would want the whole situation to go back to 1956 and to be different and have come forward from there, knowing that that's ultimately what brought this people to Christ, or at least many of them. In the late 1960s, while my wife and I were in Ecuador, one of the young men who was in classes that I taught at the Alliance Academy, his name was Steve Saint, went into the Alca country and was baptized in the very river in which his father died by one of the killers of his father, who was an elder in the Alca church. Baptized by that killer when he was oh, about 16 or so years of age. And he's written about that in various articles since that time. But we remember it happening. I even had him write a term paper relative to his contact with these people, and he took photographs and everything that went along with it. Moses was miraculously preserved for 120 years from harm, from harm that certainly would have come to uh, anyone if God's hand were not there to grant protection. Moses would have been a dead man the first time he stuck his nose before Pharaoh and threatened Pharaoh. You don't threaten an absolute sovereign who is also divine and survive. Because we're behind him is whom? The prince of darkness. And Satan is not a gentleman. And during the last 40 years of his life, Moses faced so many opportunities when he could have died so many opportunities when harm could have come to him. Uh, he could have been executed ten times over, and he could have been killed by his own people on more than one occasion. Yet God preserved him through it all. And then when his mission was fulfilled, God took him home. And the scripture tells us that when he went home, he still could see and hear and had, to, had basically the body of a young man, although he was 120 years old. So he didn't just die of old age, you know, going up to the top of the mountain and saying, well, Lord, I did my job, you know. <laughs> but God just took him because he had accomplished the purpose for which God had called him. Fulfilled his mission, and now Moses knows the full meaning of every promise in Scripture, as has everyone who has gone on before us to God's kingdom. So it's, I think, extremely important that we place our faith in God, that we look to his word as guide for our lives, but we don't hold him responsible and accuse him, as Job's wife told Job he ought to do, if it doesn't go the way we thought it ought to go. You know, situation doesn't. Well, we're going to, I, I guess this is a good point to stop because we need to look at Moses confronting Pharaoh again. Is that you, O troubler of Egypt? As Moses comes to tell him, 
a plague of insects is going to sweep. And this has got to be different from the gnats, you know. A massive horde of flies, probably horse flies or something like that, you know. You ever messed with a horse fly? That's another thing they have in, in Ecuador. <laughs> did you run across those? I'm sure you did. They, I mean, we, they were like this, and they bit right through your Levi's. And, and so you can imagine what this plague must have been. How long is it between plagues? It's a good question. Most of the plagues where a time frame is mentioned, it seems seven days. But in between the plague of the, of the gnats and the plague of the insects, there's no time frame mentioned. And so it sounds as if they are almost back to back. Barely do the gnats go away. The script doesn't even say they go away. Uh, maybe they didn't go away. But it, it seems to imply that one plague follows the other sequentially. And so they just barely get rid of the one and start to say, whew, whew, and zap, another one comes. And so really you can understand. If, if you see the buildup of emotion here, I mean, these are being mentally and emotionally totally exhausted by this. And you can understand why finally they say, please, get out of here. Take whatever you want. My wealth, my silverware, anything, just take it and go. Because these people so 